Hi, I'm Brandon Mercer. And I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, December 10th, 2015, and this is episode 6 of Garbage. All right, on this week's episode, I'm going to um, cover a little update on Zen, some um, changes that have happened um, that Mike B has done, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about um, some VMM improvements that have happened over the uh, past few weeks, and uh, then I think I'm going to talk about my solar charge controller that I've been working on building um, from scratch. And uh, I am not going to talk about anything, but I'm <laughs> going to uh, listen to Brandon and chime in. So yeah, so OpenBSD is uh, getting ready to be uh, able to run on Zen as a guest. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. And um, I had to look up what some of this stuff is because there's so much going on with virtualization that uh, it's hard to keep all the pieces straight. But what happened was um, Rake, uh, who's one of the OpenBSD developers, he has a company, Estenera Networks, GB GmbH, and they sponsored uh, Mike B um, to work on PVHVM, um, the paravirtual hypervisor. Um, so he built all of the um, uh, kernel bits to run on Zen with all the hardware um, support and uh, um, the paravirtualization support. And basically, if you're not familiar with that, there's a ton of stuff that you can you can read about. But the hardware is good at um, some some hardware has virtualization bits built in, and then there's paravirtualization bits, um, and then this is kind of combining those two concepts together so that you get the best of both worlds um, in in the virtualized environment. Yeah, I think uh, most commonly this is used in uh, Amazon EC2, so this will allow us to run OpenBSD on uh, Amazon EC2 instances. Yeah, Rick actually uh, tweeted today a uh, link to a D message from OpenBSD running on uh, EC2 on the micro instance. Um, it doesn't have networking yet, but uh, it was able to boot all the way to the uh, to the Getty login prompt, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, very awesome. I'm excited to see this kind of stuff happening in OpenBSD. And um, huge thank you and shout out to Rake and his company for sponsoring Mike B to be able to do that. And uh, on the other side of the uh, of virtualization, um, having the actual hypervisor, uh, what's new with uh, VMM? So Mike Larkin, the other Mike, has been working on um, VMM in OpenBSD, and I guess. Um, we should kind of talk about how that uh, approach looks. And so there's there's three parts of it um, in OpenBSD that you kind of have going on. There's uh, VMM, which is the kernel interface. So there's stuff in the kernel that um, you'll see it attaching, and it exposes some hardware bits. And there's a, um, a daemon called VMD, and... The, that stands for virtual machine daemon. This is the piece that kind of starts up um, when your machine starts up and it executes your virtual machines. And um, they actually added a configuration file that um, you can set up all your VMs in and you can configure um, like the number of CPUs, 
I'm sorry, the number of network interfaces and the, where the disks in, uh, are and all that kind of stuff. So it, it basically gets wired up just like any other service would in OpenBSD. You have an entry in the um, etsyrc.conf.local for VMD flags, and then VMD will um, read this uh, default configuration file if you have one set up. And um, once that's running, you can actually manage your virtual machines through VMCTL. And uh, it's probably worth mentioning that that got renamed and changed from what it once was. Um, I think it was VMMCTL, and now it's VMCTL. And what that um, um, application lets you do is you can start and stop and reload your virtual machines, get the status of them, um, but you can also do other kind of fun things like you can um, attach to the console of a particular VM um, just by passing in the ID of the, the VM that you want to look at. So those are the kind of bits and pieces that have come together. And if you look at um, what's in the man pages, um, it's really, really uh, simple to use. And I think that's uh, a nice refinement that's happened since we saw the original, um, you know, release from Mike Larkin. Uh, the examples in here, uh, you're, you're using VMCTL, you create a disk image and give it a size, it creates the disk image very quickly. Um, you can create the new virtual machine basically by typing VMCTL start, the name of the VM, how much memory you want to allocate to it, um, how many network interfaces you want to have, the disk image, and what kernel you want to boot, and that's it. And um, to me, I think that's really simple, really clean. I've seen some of the Beehive stuff in action, and um, if you thought Beehive was clean and worked well, I think you're going to be happy with this as well. Yeah, I've tried to use, uh, or I've had to use QEMU in the past in uh, trying to remember or trying to like do, uh, figure out all the flags and stuff to pass to. It's kind of daunting. Yeah, I've I've had the exact same kind of impression every time I've tried to use uh, QEMU for stuff, and and actually. QMU feels pretty slow to me, and even though um, VMM and VMD haven't been completely ironed out and optimized, um, they actually feel pretty responsive and pretty usable right now. It just feels like um, you know you're sitting native on the hardware to me um, on the things that I've tried it on. What have you used it for? Uh, really, just to test. Um, okay. I stuck it on my X220 and and fired it up and tried things out and. The first time I started VMD, the machine basically goes off into La La Land for a few seconds and then whatever. Um, but when I attached to my machine on the console, it was, you know, working just fine. And um, I had a, a little bit of a struggle trying to figure out networking, but that, that stuff has been improved on now. And I also put it on my uh, APU2, which isn't fully supported right now, but um, the parts that have been uh, lacking there have been improved on recently, and um, yeah, it's uh, it's been kind of interesting to fire up that stuff on there and, and see what it'll do. Cool. I haven't uh, have, haven't really had a need to do anything with it, but uh, it should be nice to play around with it. Yeah. I'm hoping to be able to run it on my APU2 just to kind of isolate um, my firewall stuff so that I can upgrade um, on the machine itself without having to, you know, risk 
messing something up, I'll have two VMs running on there, upgrade one of them, test everything out, divert traffic if I need to, and all that kind of fun stuff. Cool. Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to the uh, Zen stuff a little bit more because I have a an actual need for that. I have one um, non like bare metal uh, OpenBSD uh, machine out there on the internet that just is basically like a, a remote server to do um, network monitoring and stuff from the outside. So mm-hmm. it would be nice to move that to um, like a Zen instance instead of whatever weird virtualization it's using now where it has to emulate the entire machine. Yeah. I think I have, um, I'm using Vulture, V-U-L-T-R, um, for a okay. similar type thing where I just, uh, you know, fired up a VM and, and have it, uh, you know, out there to do stuff with that doesn't really matter. Yeah. And uh, I've been really happy with their support. Um, I remember I was able to pull up um, their console app in my browser in OpenBSD and it worked. Mm. Yeah, you don't have that crappy java stuff yeah that's right and uh i i saw that as a huge benefit um i want to say that it was like a vnc console through the web browser yeah that's what uh the i'm using host virtual for mine and they have the same thing it's like a um vnc through html and javascript or whatever Mm -hmm. but it's definitely a lot nicer than having to um I mean, I have, I've had, uh, like bare metal, uh, servers out there before that I've needed a remote console on and you have to use their like weird IP KVM thing from Mm -hmm. like super micro or something. And so you have to like load up this awful Java applet that needs like every permission possible to access everything on your computer. And it's like, God, what am I installing or using right now? Yeah. And what is it doing to my computer? Yeah, so it's like uh, I actually went to the length of like using VMware on my Mac to uh, run Windows and then do the Java crap inside of Windows inside the v- the VM just so mm-hmm. that it wouldn't be like touching my Mac. But yeah, that uh, the VNC stuff on the, the um, virtualized machines is a lot nicer. Yeah, I agree completely. So. The last thing I wanted to spend some time talking about, and, and I don't know that this is necessarily technology, but this has been what's occupying most of my time that I usually spend working on technology, and that is um, I've been working on a solar power setup, and basically I took the time to build a solar panel from scratch. Um, I bought really nice cells off the internet, and I soldered them together, and I started to look at um, like solar charge controllers. And the charge controller is basically the piece that optimizes the amount of power that you can extract from your solar panel. And it puts it into a battery and at the same time provides the, um, the load side or you know the constant power for whatever you want to run off of your solar setup. And... Um, I kind of ran into a problem with these solar charge controllers, and there was nothing out there that did what I wanted to do. And um, the first thing was is none of them want to use lithium batteries. And I thought, this is kind of a silly um, thing. Like, why wouldn't all these solar charge controllers um, support lithium batteries? And I found out that there's kind of a big problem with supporting lithium batteries. Um, 
So you have this $800 or so solar charge controller that supports lithium batteries, and you kind of find out that it's actually hurting the batteries a little bit and, and uh, carelessly working around some issues. So let me kind of, this is hard to, to talk about, I guess, for folks that aren't too familiar with this, but I'll try and do my best to explain the situation. When you have um, uh, like a solar setup, you have power coming in and power going out at the same time. And um, with a lead-acid battery, there's um, like two phases to charging that happen. Um, one of them is like a bulk charge, and basically you can just dump amperage into the battery at, you know, depending on your uh, beliefs about the battery life, 13 some odd volts or 14 volts or 12 volts or whatever you want to do, and the battery takes the charge really hard. And you can also wire something straight up to the positive and negative side of that battery and draw power from it at the same time, and it doesn't care. Um, the charge controller can, can keep charging the battery, the battery doesn't care that you're drawing power from it, and everything's happy. Now, the difference here is that when the battery is done, it goes to a trickle or a float charge for a while. And a lead-acid battery can take um, an indefinite trickle charge, where it basically is receiving a small amount of electricity just to keep things topped off. And when you start to work with lithium batteries, the, the big difference here is that they use a, a constant current and then constant voltage charging al algorithm which means basically you'll charge the battery at, say, 2 amps for a certain period of time until the voltage in the cell rises to a certain voltage. And then, once it reaches that voltage, you charge it using constant voltage. And what will happen is the cell will draw less and less current from that charge until it reaches a certain point, and it says, okay... Um, here's my predefined threshold. I'm going to stop charging this battery because it's, it's charged enough. And so um, when you have that type of setup, you can't draw power from the battery at the same time that you're charging it because the charge controller will see um, that you're drawing current from there and it'll keep trying to charge the battery. And you will damage the batteries when that happens. And I thought okay, um, but isn't the current going to the, you know, to whatever load you're running at the same time, and it's not actually going into the battery, and there's been kind of debates on the internet about that, so I started to research it, and uh, the research basically turned into me actually trying to do this, um, using some simple stuff that I found on eBay, and come to find out, you will actually damage the cells um, when you leave that, that, um, load across them or that charge across them and try and draw current from them. So that is the really, really brief reason for why solar charge controllers don't really support lithium batteries well right now. Um, and, and, you, and you probably are sitting in front of a laptop or a phone right now that has similar circuitry in it where you have a lithium battery in there you plug in the power adapter, everything works, and it charges the battery, um, and it runs the laptop at the same time. And there are uh, there are chips out there that do that. Um, 
if you ever open up a battery pack, actually don't, don't ever open up a battery pack. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Take my word that if you open up a battery pack, there's circuitry in there um, that um, will charge the battery, but not draw power from it. It monitors temperature, it monitors time, um, it has all sorts of safety mechanisms built in, but you aren't running your laptop from your battery while you're charging it, uh, in most cases. Um, so the computer communicates with this chip in the, in the battery pack and tells it uh, certain different things, you know, hey, stop charging, or whatever it has to tell it. But that's, that's kind of the same type of setup that I want to have with my solar, except um, if you're drawing a 5-amp load from your solar panel, and your solar panel only provides up to 5 amps, then um, you'll never really get anything into your batteries. So that's kind of what I've been working on. Um, that's the interesting battery piece side of this. But um, the, the first piece of interesting, contentious um, stuff that I ran into is um, there's other people working on solar charge controllers. And they're very confident that they're doing a good job of it, and I am too. Um, and they're actually publishing um, source code and schematics, so you can build similar type stuff online. And um, there's a there's a couple out there that are very popular on um, what is it called, like the um, Instructables. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that happened is this guy publishes this um, this um, charge controller, has the schematics, here's the components you need, here's how to calculate the proper inductors, here's how to um, find the proper type of um, basically every electrical component that you can think of and put it together. And people found problems with it right off the bat. Um, So these charge controllers are basically um, maximum power point tracking um, and so here's kind of another interesting thing. When you, when you have a solar panel, the open voltage, the open current, or the open circuit voltage, and the closed circuit voltage obviously are different. Um, if I take a reading of the voltage on the solar panel when it's sitting out in the sun, it's something like 19 volts. And as you start to draw power from that, that voltage drops down. And um, so basically, if you shorted the cell out, it would not have a very high voltage and not be very good for the cell um, as well. But um, you can actually extract more power from this panel if you optimize the load that's put onto this solar panel. And the way that works is um, you have a a small inductor, and basically what that is is it's like um, a toroid with... um, some insulated wire wrapped around it and the solar panel charges this inductor and then you uh, you turn that off and the uh, inductor has like a, a magnetic field that collapses on itself and it discharges out um, to somewhere else and in this case we're gonna you know run a battery charger off of it and then you turn the solar panel back on and it'll charge the inductor and then you turn it off and then back and forth very 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 quickly and um, 
you can actually gain a lot more power out of your solar panel than if you just let um, the thing provide load into your system. Meaning, uh, if, you, if you plugged it into your charger and you said, okay, I'm going to try and draw four amps out of this thing, the voltage would probably drop pretty drastically. And that's why you need this maximum power point tracking kind of thing. Now, this is a, a fun thing because um, I'm using like a little Teensy. Um, are you familiar with those? Uh, no, but isn't that what you were using in your keyboard? Or am I misremembering? No, that, that's exactly right. Um, okay. I'm using a newer version. Um, it's, it's basically a small little like um, Arduino-like board with a bunch of I.O. pins and, um, what, what am I trying to say here? There's there's things that can drive, like, a, a MOSFET, and there's things that can, you know, read voltage and all this other kind of stuff. I'm, I'm totally hosing this all up. But um, anyway, the Teensy is kind of what I'm using to monitor um, the power coming off of the, the solar panel. There's a small circuit that is able to detect um, how much... Uh, potential energy is coming off of the solar panel. And then the Teensy uses a hill climbing algorithm, which I did not write, to try and deduce um, whether slowing down the pulses is letting you have more power or speeding them up is letting you have more power or draw more power. And if you guys want to look on YouTube, there's a there's a guy, Jillian Allais, and he... Um, he is working on one, and you can watch the, the solar panel jump from producing like 50 watts when it's on a like a manually adjusted setting to something like 70 watts or 75 watts or 80 watts when he lets his ma maximum PowerPoint tracking algorithm uh, figure out how much power to draw from this panel. That's a pretty significant improvement. And there's some people who say, just buy another solar panel. <laughs> um but yeah, there's a whole bunch of little things around here that, that surround that whole thing. So I'm, I'm building this little circuit that essentially um, does the, the PowerPoint tracking using an inductor. Uh, there's, a, there's a MOSFET driver. There's several MOSFETs in there um, that uh, allow the power through. They drive the charger for the lithium batteries. And what I kind of um, figured out that I'm going to do for mine is I'm going to have several banks of lithium batteries um, and I'm not going to charge them at the same time I'm putting load on them. So if I have uh, six different banks of batteries, um, four of them might be getting charged and two of them might be providing the load to the rest of my system. Um, and it's, it's pretty impressive the number of, um, or the improvement in the life of the battery that you get um, when you, when you, do this type of setup, I suppose. So, uh, going back to what you were saying before, uh, the battery can't charge while it's outputting power, or is That's that right. what, or just the you have to write a controller to do that? No, it it can't do it because the 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 way the battery is charged itself. Um, it's looking at the amount of current that's coming off of the battery to know if the battery is done charging or not. And so if you put a load on there, um, the charger will keep charging it, and the battery actually gets damaged. Um, and, and all you electrical engineers out there are going to start talking about the path of least, res least resistance, but I can show you that 
it does damage the cell. Um, because the charger can't detect that it's done. And you do wind up hurting the, the battery pretty badly when you do that. So you just need the controller to tell it when to stop charging? or Yep, that, yep that's okay. exactly right. So the controller looks at the amount of current that's going into the cell or the battery pack or whatever you have. Um, and so let's say you have, um, a, you're using like a one amp charge. Usually like a rule of thumb for that is when you see the cell taking less than a hundred milliamps, then you know that that charge cycle is done. It's like a tenth of the charge rating is, is when you detect that it's maxed out its um, particular charge. And so um, that 100 milliamp tells you indefinitely, or I guess is the rule of thumb, that the, the battery shouldn't be taking any more power. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think of this in terms of the lithium-ion battery in my car, because it's mm-hmm. taking, because uh, I swapped out the uh, the lead-acid battery that was in there mm-hmm. for a, a lithium-ion battery, because it weighs less. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's taking... Uh, power constantly from the alternator, um, but it also has to provide power. So you're just you're saying that that's just all the controller having to manage that. Yeah, and that's charge right. Charge some of the cells and then take power from the other ones. Mm-hmm, that's exactly right. So what probably happens is you probably have um, circuitry on top of your battery, mm-hmm. and that circuitry is is basically making sure that none of the cells overcharge to um, a dangerous level and um, basically you know you're going to draw power from that at the same time you're charging it and all that kind of stuff and and I think it's a little bit different situation than what's in a a lithium like a a solar charge kind of setup because these these setups cost a lot of money for batteries and um, you know you don't want your cells to be completely done after three years Mm -hmm. so the first thing you do is you kind of control your depth of discharge. So you keep track of the voltage in the in the cells. You make sure that when you charge them, you don't charge them up entirely to their max voltage. Mm-hmm. There's there's a there's a crazy amount of chemistry that's happening inside the battery when you take it all the way back up to its peak voltage, and um, basically if you can bring it so like let's say the cells. Um, peak voltage is 4.2 volts. You might take your cell to 4.07 or 4.1 or something like that, and um, you won't get the same amount of capacity out of it, but you also um, make the the battery last a little bit longer, so you'll get Mm -hmm. more cycles out of it. And similarly, when you drain the battery, um, you know, these cells say, oh, you can take them down to 2.5 volts. But what happens with a lithium battery when you drain it down completely, if you do 100% depth of discharge, it actually hurts the cell quite a bit, and it's it's not a repairable damage. So once you've discharged your battery, your lithium battery, 100%, it's not going to have the same uh, capacity that it did when you <laughs> before that happened. Hmm. Um, so usually the rule of thumb is you never go more than 80, and on some of these solar setups people like to stay closer to like 60 or 50 percent mm. uh, depth of this discharge each way and the edges of those are the part where you really see the most drastic um, uh, f- 
fall off in capacity and lifetime to the cell. Hmm. Yeah, so that must all just be uh, getting done in the controller and my battery. Because the other reason I got it was that uh, the car sits for a long time. Because like, it has to sit all winter in the garage. And when the battery drains low enough that it can't... Uh, that it won't be able to start the car, the controller shuts the battery off, so it kills nice. the power. Uh, then I can just push the button on the battery in the trunk, so it will, nice. like won't ever let it get low enough. But I'm also thinking the battery on my um, the laptop on my Samsung. The I guess it's just for the calibration though, because like it has a, a mode in the BIOS where you can run the battery all the way down to zero from the yep. BIOS, and then it'll recalibrate like the smart battery thing or whatever. So mm-hmm. that must be a similar thing, right? It's just the controller seeing how much uh, is actually left in the battery because it's never all the way full or all the way empty. Yeah, that's that's right. And and so it's, it's trying to measure the amount of... Well, it's trying to measure the amount of energy that's come out of the battery, um, and it's trying to calculate how much it's put back in. And what, what winds up happening is these, uh, these cells have this, uh, thing. There's like a, a cumulomic efficiency. And it's basically like, um, if I put 2,500 milliamp hours in a cell and I take it all the way back down to the minimum voltage, I might get, um, 2,490 milliamps, uh, milliamp hours out of it. And that, that ratio between how much you put in and how much you took out is, the efficiency, the cumulomic efficiency. And so if it was one-to-one, the battery would last forever. But it's not one-to-one. And so when you have your laptop running and you charge it up a little bit, um, it puts a little bit of energy in, and then you take it off the charger and it drains down a little bit. And then you plug it back in and it charges up a little bit more. And it's measuring all those, um, the amount of energy going in and the amount of energy going out, but it can't account for that cumulomic efficiency. So mm-hmm. it never really knows what 100% of the discharge is. Yeah, so that's what you're accounting for with that. Um, so there, there's all these crazy things that people talk about with uh, lithium cells and lithium batteries. And um, when you exercise them or, or use them for the first time, you generally want to maybe like the first five or ten cycles that you have on the battery Maybe only take it down to like 80% and um, use it under a very light workload and then charge it back up very slowly because there's an oxidization that happens on the inside of the cell. And um, generally, the, the better you can do it the first few times, the longer the cell will last and the, the less um, aggressively that, that cell will oxidize, the inside of that cell will oxidize over the rest of its life. This is, uh, you're doing the solar stuff for like, like on a large scale to power your house or something, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and right now the proof of concept is for, um, our camper. Hmm. And so we've got a single solar panel and a, and, um, a small bank of batteries and, um, you know, small kind of like HVAC air circulation, uh, lighting and that kind of stuff. Uh, in the camper so that when I mess up, it doesn't cost us as much as it will when I install a bigger system. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Yeah. It, it's, it's been a lot of fun and I've been, um, I've been following like Tesla's work, uh, or not Tesla, like the Tesla 
power wall that they have in the Tesla mm-hmm. motor companies. And um, I think that's fantastic. And he's doing a lot of really, really, really tough engineering and solving those big problems. And um, he's patenting a lot of stuff and letting the patents go out there with, uh, with no royalties mm-hmm. to encourage other people to, you know, start helping the environment, <laughs> which is yeah. fantastic. It's been a very fun learning um, process for me. I've been, I think I did it mostly because I wanted to understand the science of what goes into this stuff because you can find these solar charge controllers like maximum PowerPoint tracking charge controllers on eBay for $15. And I thought, well, if, if you can do it for $15, then why do these things cost $800 and $1,000 and all this kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. And then I, I wanted to understand like what is the difference and what they do. And it's it's been a huge, 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 massive eye-opening experience. <laughs> cool. So how how much longer do you think um, it would take you to have it working for your camper where it can, like, will it be just supplemental power or are you going to run the whole thing off of it? Yeah, the plan is to run the entire um, camper off of it. And, and really the first step right now is going to be uh, charging banks of batteries without catching anything on fire or having explosions. Um, and, and I hope I just ordered a bunch of batteries tonight. I have, um, something like 160, 163 amp hours of, of capacity that I just ordered in the form of Panasonic 18650 cells. And, um, basically those are like the cells that are in your laptop battery. Mm-hmm. And that's the a similar technology to what's used in the Tesla power wall and the, um, and their cars and stuff. It happens to be the lightest and least expensive and, you know, highest watt per dollar or dollar per watt or something like that for storage. And, I, and I'm not really sure how long it's going to take me to get um, the entire system completely ironed out. I have the maximum PowerPoint tracking stuff to where I know it'll work. It's basically a calculation of how much power you can get from your solar panel and... Um, you you plug that into a couple formulas and you find out what size inductor you need and what size MOSFETs you need and the MOSFET drivers and you wire them up and then I have software for the Teensy to run that using the hill climbing algorithm and it'll generate power. Um, so then we can just start charging these banks of batteries. And I guess that kind of brings uh, brings me to my next sort of thing that I had trouble with. Um, with lithium batteries, you have to balance every cell. And inside your laptop battery, they might hook um, three cells up in parallel. So positive to positive to positive, negative to negative to negative. And I found um, some problems with that. Some Sometimes laptop batteries last like two years. And I was like, if these laptop batteries don't last two years, then how do these same cells produce enough energy for a car to go down the street for 10 years or whatever in a mm-hmm. Tesla. And um, and basically, uh, the answer is that if these cells have a different internal, internal resistance, they will charge at different rates. And so if I put three of them in parallel and, um, and start charging them, even though they're the same capacity, even though they're like 2,600 milliamp hours, uh, one of them is going to take a charge slower than the rest. And internal resistance results in heat. And heat is 
no good for lithium batteries. And rather than try and spend a lot of money on cells and uh, group together cells with um, similar internal resistance, I decided to put together packs of six in series. So you wind up with something like 22 volts when the pack um, is the nominal rating, I guess, in the pack. But when you put um, six cells together, you can um, read the voltage of every single cell while it's charging and have the charger um, monitor the, um, the cell voltage and control so that you don't overcharge a particular cell. Um, it can detect if there's a bad cell. So if, if you have one cell that has a high internal resistance, it can see that. If you have a cell that is not coming up um, with the charge, it can see that and alert you. Whereas if you have three cells hooked together in parallel, you don't know what's going on there. And there's no fuse between those other cells and it can catch on fire. It can, mm-hmm. you know, the pack goes bad prematurely or whatever happens. So to me, this, this felt like a, a safer way to do that. And it would also let me control um, a lot of things with how the batteries are charged so that I can get the most life out of these cells. And the other kind of good side effect of, of that is that 24 volts or 22 volts um, from this pack actually works a little bit better um, because, you know, when you try and run something that requires 500 watts from batteries, if you have 12 volts, uh, it takes a lot of amps to, to generate 500 watts. So you have mm-hmm. really thick wire. So if you can come up with something in the in the 20, 24 volt range, um, your wires get smaller and your amp draws get lower and all that kind of stuff to generate the same type of power. And um, so a couple other things that I'm working on with this solar charge controller that I've, it's really hard to keep track of all these different pieces and parts. But one of the things is everybody asks about like the metrics of you know how much power you're generating um, and how much power goes into the batteries and then how much power you're consuming and stuff. That was actually one of the other things that made me want to use lithium rather than lead acid. So with a lithium battery, if I put in 2,600 milliamp hours to that pack, I'm going to get out pretty close to 2,600 milliamp hours of usable power. And with, with lead acid, you could put in, you know, three or four times the amount of energy that you're going to get out of a lead acid battery. That's just how the, the, that's just how lead acid batteries work. They they require a lot more energy to charge than you you'll ever get back out of them. So they're kind of a I mean people use them and they're sort of reliable but they're not very ideal. And we've yeah. pretty much peaked out what we're going to be able to get out of a lead acid battery whereas lithium uh we're still, you know, messing around with the um with the chemistry of it and we're able to put additives in the cell that make it oxidize a little less. We're putting groups of additives in cells to get really good life out of them, lower the internal resistance, and we, and the good news is, is we have a long way to go when it comes to improving the lithium battery. And if you're using this in your camper, using uh, lead acid batteries would weigh a lot, so you'd uh, kill your gas mileage as you're uh, towing your camper down the road. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, a single um, deep cycle battery is something like 80 pounds for something, you know, that's not very useful. Yeah, I mean, the one in my car, the lead acid battery was 37 pounds. The lithium ion battery I replaced it with is 5 pounds. 
Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, that's that's again that you know watt density to weight to everything else. Yeah, it, it's a huge improvement. So yeah, that's uh, man, it, it's been kind of a crazy week. I mean, we, we're talking about technology on this podcast, and um, my poor technology has been completely tapped out at work, <laughs> and you know, working on this uh, solar charge controller for ages and ages now. Were you working on that at the hackathon when you and I were talking? Because it sounds kind of familiar, like you were talking about this a while ago. Yeah, I had started working on it back then. And I think I had the solar panel, and I had the idea that I was going to build um, a charge controller. Mm-hmm. But the breakthrough with understanding the, the pitfalls of um, you know parallel charging lithium batteries and you know putting a load on them while they're charging and how to get around that and what's easiest to, to get around that just kind of came in the past uh, couple weeks. Nice. Well, good. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Not really. Still uh, digging into this trackpad controller, and uh, it's a lot more complicated than <laughs> I was planning. So that that stuff sits off the I2C bus, right? Uh, it does, but the configuration of everything is in ACPI. So um, there's like an ACPI like device definition in there that mm-hmm. says where the controller is as far as the like um the interrupt and the memory like the base and everything so i have the driver written that can pull that stuff out of acpi and then do like a bus space map to that address mm-hmm. and then try and talk to that uh device to start sending commands to it and it's not returning uh like the device is not responding so I don't know what's going on there. But then once it is able to do that, I have to write the driver uh, for that controller, which is like, um, it's called a designware. So there's a Linux driver for it, which if, which is what I'm looking at, because this obviously works in Linux. Mm-hmm. So once I have the controller working, then the devices that are behind the controller are also in ACPI. There's no like probing for them. So then I have to oh, write yeah. the HID driver that uh, sits underneath the controller that would also pull its configuration stuff out of ACPI. And then I can, in the HID driver, probe the device that is set up in ACPI and then figure out what the actual device is, which in my case would be the trackpad. And then I can start receiving the uh, HID packets over I2C and then translate those into like mouse coordinates and stuff. So there's like a lot of layers, and uh, it's kind of hard to figure this stuff out in OpenBSD as far as like, uh, you know, is it an ACPI driver or is it an I2C controller? Uh, so like, as far as hooking everything up where it's supposed to be, it's kind of difficult, and there's no documentation for it. Yeah, of course. And and um, so to anybody who's listening, who's who's kind of wondering like, why can't you just take the Linux driver? Um, those types of drivers are not documentation, and uh, the way the Linux kernel is structured and way, the way they write drivers doesn't translate well into the way OpenBSD's kernel does things. So you can't just look at that code and say, oh yeah, I'll just make that work over here. Um, there's, there's a lot more that goes into it than just that. So. Yeah, and, and Linux seems to be um, big on having all these like layers of abstraction because they have so many different architectures and devices to support. So just trying to like read the code, you'll see it calling all these other functions that have nothing to do with the driver itself. 
So you have to kind of like trace all those back and figure out what all those functions do to see what like command it's actually sending to the hardware. So it's mm-hmm. taking quite a while to dig through all that. Object-oriented Candyland. Yeah, it's pretty fun in that Linux kernel. Especially, it seems like all these drivers I'm running into are like the drivers that have been written by uh, Intel employees. I don't know what it is about the way they write drivers at Intel, but they are very large. Yeah, there's a lot of files and a lot of code in those files. And like you said, a lot of that code is abstracted out really, really, really far. Yeah, but plugging along, it sucks having to like try something, recompile the kernel, reboot, see if it works. If it doesn't, boot back into Linux, add something to that kernel to see if it, you know, to like check a value or something recompile the Linux kernel, mm-hmm. which takes forever, and then reboot that, see if it works, go back to OpenBSD. It's like a lot of back and forth. Yeah, I, that's that's how... I mean, you you almost wonder if you like... You, you can't even use JTAG for that kind of stuff, can you? No, I think the problem I'm having right now is that the um, device is not in a correct power state uh, before I even talk to it. Because, like, uh-huh. um, I instrumented in the Linux kernel to see every command that it's writing to that I.O. port, and I'm doing the uh-huh. same thing in OpenBSD. But even the first um, command that it sends, which says, like, what like it, it is expecting back, like, a magic number to see that the controller is actually there. And mm-hmm. on OpenBSD, I'm getting back um, just, like, uh, you know, 0x, FFFFF, whatever. So it's not responding correctly. But in Linux, if I uh, remove the, if I unload the module for that driver and then reload it, when it tries to do that magic number check, it gets back that same 0x, FFF, whatever. So in Linux, um, something that it's doing the first time that it doesn't do when I reload the module is kind of in the same state that it is in OpenBSD. So I have to dig down now into the ECPI stack in Linux to see like if it's trying if it's like having to wake up that device before it even hands it off to the i2c controller driver because in the i2c controller driver it's not doing anything like power related it's already expecting that device to be woken up yeah so yeah fun all around yeah it sounds like it (laughs) yeah um you know when we were talking last week about um you know javascript and you know, building templates in Python or Ruby versus uh, doing JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it was a little bit uh, foreshadowing. Um, this past entire week, I've been um, rolling out a new lighter web application for the company that I'm working at. And um, I'm using Riot.js like I was talking about. And I got basically a little single page application wired up and working. And I, I'm, I gotta say, I'm really, really happy with it. Um, when, when, there's like a whole mindset that I couldn't, um, get my head around. And a long time ago, I think some people at Google were trying to convince me that, um, having the JavaScript do calls into the server and get information back was better than having, you know, using a templating and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, no, 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 because <laughs> look at all the complexity and look at all the needless this. Yeah. But now that I have, now that I've, um, spent a week and I've gotten it, you know, usable and where I want it, I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah. And I, I think 
I mean, I built a lot of templates and it took me a lot to be able to, you know, start using JavaScript in that capacity. But um, for an application that does as much as this one does, um, I, I'm pretty happy with how this solution looks. There's a single HTML page and there's a small, tiny uh, amount of uh, Riot in that initial home page. And basically all it does is it says, load the navigation tag. So Riot has this notion of um, tags. And, and it's basically a snippet of HTML and JavaScript. And Riot pulls that in and it um, replaces um, a tag on a page with that particular stuff. And it compiles it in. And um, so I might have a navigation tag and that navigation tag basically like looks at the route uh, where you where you're at in your application and it'll do things based on that and so what I did is I made uh, the first like 10 or so different pages for the application and they're real simple stuff like um, um, an input box that will let you do search and then render the, the results in a table so it's like you know 20 or 30 lines of HTML and then um, maybe another 15 or 20 lines of JavaScript that I just wrote by hand to do validation and then post the form. And there's no callbacks or anything. It basically on success and on error and all this kind of stuff. And it, and it works well. And um, so basically there's like one of these per function in your application that you want to do. And what I, what I wired up is I told Riot to um, mount a particular tag when the route matches and I just got that working today and um, really really happy with it so for instance you click on um, search for files and uh, it sees the route search for files it mounts that tag and then it shows you that form on the page and then um, I put some other stuff in there to unmount the rest of the stuff <laughs> that exists in the application so you don't see like uh, your file search page, when you have your claim search page, when you have your ICD code search page and all this other stuff in there. But um, yeah, it, I, I'm really happy with it. It works really well. I've, you know, got good feedback. When you when you click the button, you can see the search function happening with a, a little um, animated GIF or something like that. I don't know what it is, but and it works well. It's it's really performant. And so you really only load the JavaScript libraries one time. Mm -hmm. You you know, you pull in that index.html and um, it's really lightweight. I mean, as far as Java or JavaScript applications go these days, I think I was right around 400K um, with a calendar app, all the CSS, Riot, and jQuery, and all the other nonsense that I used. And um, I was happy with that. How do you, uh, how, do you how are you building forms in Riot? Um, so it's just, uh, it's inside that tag. Um, and basically you just type the HTML and in that tag, you might have some JavaScript that would say like, um, reference this particular ID, um, and pull the value out of it. So you'd say like in the case of the ICD search form, I would say ICD search dot value. And then I would pass that into the JSON dot stringify that goes into the application. So I, I have to pull out the form values um, by the DOM ID. Is that what you were asking? Yeah, I'm just thinking, like, when I make an app in Rails, because the server side is generating the HTML for the forms, mm -hmm. it has access to the model, so it knows 
the like name of the columns, the validations that are on them, the default values for the object that you're like editing or whatever like that. So, and then when you submit the form and there's an error, like it can color the, the field that failed validation because all of that stuff is tied together. So I'm just wondering how you do that. Like since in Riot, you have no access to your models on the back end. You'd only have access to like yeah. a JSON uh, error from the server, like from the API, basically, and then you have to do yep. that in Riot. Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, it and it's not ideal, but what I wound up doing is I um, I do validation on the form in JavaScript using just writing it by hand, uh, looking at field lengths and all that kind of stuff, which isn't ideal, but it really wasn't horrible. I didn't have to download another 168 KB worth of validation JavaScript libraries to do it. So before the form gets posted, it gets validated in JavaScript. And then um, I do, again, validation on the server. Um, same type of checks, length, alphanumeric, no special characters, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then if there is a validation error, right now it returns back a list of validation errors. And you can iterate over those in Riot and... Um, they have this, um, uh, so, so what I did is I created a span tag right underneath the input and that span tag has like, um, an ID and an error field. Mm-hmm. And it would be like, like, for instance, like, let's say you had a first name, last name in a form span ID, first name, um, error, and then last name error. Mm-hmm. And so if the server was returning back the error information, it would um, update those, um, turn them red, or make them visible, or something like that, so that the form would see, um, oh yeah, there is an error with the first name or last name. Yeah. But I haven't gotten that sophisticated with it yet. It's just a JavaScript validation for now. Yeah. I don't know. It seems like you're having to duplicate some of your information in your Riot app and on the back end. Because even like with my apps that run Rails, when I have to write like long running daemons or something on the server that might even, that might be like a good fit for Go or some other language. Uh, I'm often hesitant to do that just because if I write it in Ruby, I can just load in those um, models from the Rails app and it can do everything that the Rails app is doing with all the same models, all the same validations, all the same database routines and everything like that. Yeah, it, it definitely is overhead. And if if they change, you're changing your application and you're changing your your templates at the same time. And um, I mean, I wish that it could be better, but I don't know that there's necessarily. A, um, well, I mean, people are playing around with um, you know server side compiling of these particular templates and returning them back every time, but that kind of defeats the purpose. But yeah, it definitely is an overhead. You have to do the validation twice, and you have to make sure that they match. Um, otherwise you kind of get in weird situations. And I think that's one thing that definitely Rails does better than this particular paradigm, um, because it is. You're, you're recreating work. But to be fair, um, not too much. I mean, my validation is probably six lines for a simple form. Mm-hmm. I guess that's why uh, a lot of people are writing server-side things in Node, because you can probably just share a lot of the same JavaScript, right? Yeah, that's that's exactly what they're trying to do, and I and I disagree with doing that. Um, and especially now that I see how little work it is to to build these forms in JavaScript, I 
I mean, you, you, you sacrifice a lot for a very small benefit in my mind, or in, in my opinion, I suppose. <laughs> um, I don't think that Node, um, you know, the, the way they're running that server side stuff is worth the hassle. I don't, I don't agree with it. Yeah. Well, kind of a, an interesting, uh, mix of things to, that we talked about tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what you get here with garbage. It's all uh, vaguely technology-related. Yeah, I, I think maybe the theme of this week's uh, podcast is that uh, uh, technology took away all of our fun things in life so we couldn't talk about technology anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'd rather uh, be out driving my car that has no technology. But Yeah, speaking of cars, um, I was like looking at the Tesla cars, and man, those things look really fun. Yeah, my uncle's got one. Um, and when you were talking about the, the batteries and stuff, he was telling me that, um, if your, like, battery pack in your car starts to go bad, like, it's not holding enough charge, that you just mm-hmm. bring it to the dealer and they swap out the entire, th- like, tray of batteries. I, um, I was looking at the, the charging stations that they have across the United States. And to me, that, that seems like a great thing. Um, that they're, you know, providing this charge station, you don't have to pay um, to get your car charged back up, and it charges an entire pack in 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, I would just imagine you'd go there and you'd stretch your legs for a little bit. You're probably traveling across the country. You sure. use the restroom. You eat some lunch or something like that. And um, it it just seems really well thought out. And I'm and I'm excited to see somebody tackle the the bigger problems of electric cars. Um, and I'm excited to see the, them bring something into the more consumer market too. Um, they're talking about um, like the SUV that they're, I don't know if it's an SUV, but they're talking about the car that they're going to launch in March um, or unveil. Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to be like $35,000. And yeah. I'm sure it won't go zero to 60 as fast as a McLaren or anything like that. But, I mean, you can tow your camper around with it and you can, uh, you know, you don't have to change the oil and the air filters and it's, you know, the cabin air filters that they have in there are basically like hospital grade and they'll filter out bacteria and fungus and all this other nasty stuff. Um, that Elon Musk is doing a really good job with that and I'm, I'm excited to see what he comes up with next. Yeah, for sure. Well, I fear we've rambled on long enough. So um, I guess we'll bring this one to a close. If you guys are enjoying this podcast, um, please let us know. Send us a tweet. Um, reach out to us on the website. And um, if you have topics you'd like to hear us talk about so that we don't ramble on about Tesla and solar charge controllers and JavaScript, <laughs> um, <laughs> let us know. And we'll talk about those techno- technology-related things instead. Or even if you don't have... Uh, if you don't like our show, uh, reach out to us anyway. Tell us why. You can subscribe to our show's RSS feed on our website at garbage.fm or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Uh, Brandon, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at NoMercyMod with a K-N-O-W. And I'm on the web at jcs.org and on Twitter at jcs. And our show is on Twitter at garbage.fm. See, Brandon, when it's all out of order, it just doesn't make sense.